This is the second of three videos addressing a three-part seminar by megachurch pastor Bill Cornelius in South Texas, wherein he tried to prove God by pretending to disprove science. In his first sermon, Cornelius showed what he doesn't know about Big Bang cosmology. King Crocoduck was kind enough to rebut him on that topic, and that's the first video of this playlist. This video and the next one both concern evolution, though the megachurch pastor obviously doesn't understand that. My viewers will hear the same things from me that they've heard many times before, and that's inevitable because this pastor is repeating so many of the common prats as every other creationist, and I'm addressing this video to him directly. But this pastor also repeats a more bewilderingly inane distortion of science than we usually hear even from the barking mad cultists and faith-healing con men who never had an education. I'll let uh, Bill Cornelius himself illustrate just how confused he is. Great to have you guys here. Thanks for joining us for this series on proof of God. We've been having a lot of fun with this. And last week, you know, we began and, and uh, this week I'm going to continue. And I got to tell you, you got to pray for your pastor because I feel like my mind is, is just taking in too much information here. It's crazy. All the research for this. But what I'm finding is simply amazing that there is so much proof scientifically that there is a God. Today, I want to tackle something that, that is, and I believe, somewhat of a religion today, and that is the theory of evolution. And so if you got your notes, pull those out, because I believe that now it's become more dogma than fact than ever, because remember that when Darwin wrote his book on the theory of evolution, that was over 150 years ago. Just think about that for a second. When he wrote his book, he was literally traveling by horse and carriage when he wrote that. And yet we're supposed to believe that with all the scientific advancements that somehow that book has still remained intact when the truth is, is that scientific advancements are actually proving that that book was wrong, that this theory was not true. And instead we have to go back 2000 more years to find a book that it accurately depicts which is the Bible. And so if you got your notes, pull those out if you would. And uh, if you are from the scientific community, I wanna say thank you for coming. Thank you for proving that you truly have an open mind, that you're open to listening to this. So many people in the science community don't even wanna hear this. And so that's how you know when someone has a religion rather than a scientific fact, when they won't even listen to the other side or another viewpoint. Thank you, Pastor Cornelius, for admitting that science is open to alternative viewpoints and that religion is unreasonable. But I have to tell you, it's obvious that you didn't consult any academic resources, no one who actually knows anything about evolution. You only sourced other creationists, folks who had no idea and don't want to know what they're talking about, because nothing you said here is true. We're not talking about trivial errors either. It's not even wrong, because everything you said is so far off the mark, not just a little bit, but completely and throughout, enough to qualify as fractal wrongness. Evolution is not a religion in any sense, but you wouldn't know that because, as you were about to demonstrate, you don't know what evolution is. And before we get to that, it seems you somehow don't know what religion is either. Through my own studies of comparative world religions, I've determined that every religion universally accepted as such by both its adherents and its critics is a faith-based belief system positing the notion that a supernatural essence of self miraculously survives the death of the physical body to continue on in some other form. Whereas, evolution is a scientific theory of biodiversity that does not meet any of the criteria of a religion, just like intelligent design creationism doesn't meet any of the criteria required of a scientific theory. Evolution is based on evidence instead of faith. It's not a belief system because belief systems have required beliefs and prohibited beliefs. 
where evolution is science and thus demands that all postulations be based on prior evidence subject to critical analysis and rewards those who challenge the status quo rather than punishing them for heresy or apostasy the way religion does. And of course, while evolution has practical applications in microbiology, toxicology, and throughout agriculture, it has nothing to say about what happens to your immortal soul after you die for anyone who believes in such things. You should know that Darwin didn't invent evolution. He merely discovered the first working mechanism to explain what was still a mystery in his time. We've found more mechanisms and much more evidence since then. And most of what we know about evolution now was discovered by other biologists, zoologists, paleontologists, embryologists, and geneticists decades after Darwin's death. As to your claim for proof of God, a couple more things we need to cover. First is that leading theologians admit that belief in God, souls, the Bible is still a matter of faith because there is no evidence to support any of that. If there was scientific proof of God, we wouldn't first hear about it from you. It would be worldwide headline news and whoever discovered it would win the Nobel Prize and the Templeton Prize. But you have neither one because you don't have any evidence. Not for God, not for the Bible, and especially not for creation. Evolution does have that. And let me be clear. While evolution is a verifiably accurate explanation of phylogenetic relationships, supported by an overwhelming preponderance of evidence in many independent fields, there is not even one single fact in existence which either contradicts evolution or supports even the possibility of your God. But even if your God did exist, evolution would still be an inescapable fact of population genetics, and the Bible would still be just one of many compilations of man-made mythology with no truth in it. These have both already been confirmed to such a degree of certainty that not even the existence of your God could change either of these things. Now, you're welcome to make believe that there's a magic invisible man behind evolution and all other natural processes if you have some emotional need to pretend such things, but you will be called out whenever you misrepresent the foundation of modern biology to the 10,000 or so people reportedly in your congregation who are susceptible to your deception. So I'm excited to be sharing with you today about this. And uh, I use a lot of different references. And I want to apologize to those of you today that were expecting to have a, a sermon full of verses because today I'm only going to use one verse at the end of the entire thing because I want to prove through science, not through the Bible, that evolution is not true because some people, as crazy as this may sound to many of us, don't believe the Bible. And so I want to prove to you through science that there is no longer a reason to believe in evolution. And so pull out your notes if you want to give you a lot of things. I wrote, wrote a lot of stuff down, so I'm going to move pretty quick through this. So forgive me if this seems a bit heady, but there's no way around that if I'm going to give you the science on this. So first of all, let's say our mission statement together. What are we here to do as a church? We're here to take as many people to heaven as we can before we die, period. That's what we're all about here at Church Unlimited again. So thanks for being a part. And that's exactly why we're doing this series is because oftentimes people say, well, I'm not into God because instead I believe in science. And so they, they use this as a crutch or as an excuse to not actually look at the claims of God and look at the Bible and ask the question, is this real? Did this really happen? Is this accurate? And so today we're gonna go ahead and debunk evolution. And honestly, it's a little complicated, but it's actually not that hard because the evidence is pretty strong. So let's jump right in. There are five ways to debunk evolution that have been proven now for years. And uh, this, every time they do another research study, it even proves it more uh, that evolution is not really the way it works. 
Actually, there are now tens of thousands of peer-reviewed studies showing how evolution has been demonstrated to work, and there has never been even one single study to show that it doesn't work. Nor has anyone ever been able to vindicate the Bible, either. Every fable therein is either unsupported assertions of impossible nonsense that, that can't be indicated or vindicated, verified or falsified, or they are unsupported assertions of impossible nonsense that have already been falsified. For example, there is a consensus among academics, archaeologists, historians, and even among biblical scholars that the Garden of Eden, Noah's Ark, the Tower of Babel, and the Exodus never really happened, but that evolution did. What you're repeating here is the very first foundational falsehood of creationism, the false dichotomy fallacy that one either has to deny science to make believe in a literal interpretation of your already falsified folklore, or they have to reject God in order to accept what we can prove to be true about evolution. You should know that evolution and all the sciences related to that were discovered by Christians, often looking for evidence of Bible stories that were nowhere to be found and that science-minded Christians have historically been and still are among the best champions of evolution. These include Reverend Robert T. Bakker with two Ivy League PhDs, who not only is a Pentecostal preacher, but was also the paleontologist who consulted for the original Jurassic Park movie. He says that to interpret the Bible as though it were common history is to degrade its eternal meaning. And one of the pioneers of genetics, Theodosius Dobzhansky, was an Orthodox Christian who many times professed his belief that life was created by God. But he famously documented the very first directly observed instance of speciation and said that nothing in biology made sense except in light of evolution. Then there's petrogeologist Dr. Glenn Morton who had to give up young earth creationism because you won't know how to find the oil in the ground if you pretend that the earth is only a few thousand years old. You have to understand what the evidence actually points to when looking for fossil fuel. And of course, Professor Kenneth Miller, PhD, describes himself as a traditional Catholic, but he is also a textbook author of evolutionary biology, and he was the star witness against intelligent design in Kitzmiller versus Dover. That's the case that proved that creationism is neither honest nor scientific. Then there's Dr. Francis Collins, director of the Human Genome Project. He identifies as an evangelical Christian, but he also says that anatomically modern humans emerged from primate ancestors long before the Genesis time frame, and that the story of Adam and Eve doesn't fit the evidence. Even the last few popes have all endorsed evolution as more than a hypothesis to be accepted as fact, because we can prove that that's what it is. So you don't have to make a choice of whether to be an atheist, materialist, philosophical naturalist, or a reality-denying religious extremist. Most people blend the two, such that they accept that science is real and you'd be a fool to deny that, but they also believe that they have a soul that'll go somewhere when they die. In fact, you represent a radical fringe in that creationism is for the most part an almost exclusively American phenomenon seen as a peculiar oddity in the rest of Christendom. Statistically, most Christians around the world are evolutionists and most evolutionists are Christian. So uh, here's the thing about evolution. First thing you need to know is this. Genetic limits and cyclical change prove that evolution doesn't work. Genetic limits and cyclical change. Let me just explain. If I were to have a broom up here and if I were sweeping, eventually if I swept long enough, I would get a callus on my thumb, right? A callus on my thumb, they would say that is evidence of evolution. And my body is evolving, right? because I'm using a broom. How many of you guys get calluses when you sweep too? Anyone else, if you sweep too long? 
No one in here does? I can't believe this. I'm the only one? Wow. Okay, there's some other hands. Okay, I'm like, wow, maybe I'm the only lazy one that doesn't sweep enough, right, to actually have a developed callus there. But the truth is I get, I get a little callus there or whatever you happen to do, if you lift weights a lot, you can get callus on your hands, whatever it is. The, the point is, is that you build up callus over time that they say that's a sign of evolution. Your body is evolving. If you go outside and get a tan, what's that? That's your skin evolving right? Because of the sun. And so that's what they, they say that that proves evolution exists. No, it isn't. Here's the thing about evolution. The first thing that you need to know is that populations evolve, not individuals. The way that works is that every puppy is born with a number of tiny differences from all other pups in that same litter. Every puppy in every litter in every generation is slightly different than every other puppy anywhere ever. Usually when they grow up and breed with other dogs, these tiny differences tend to be overridden by recombining their traits with the parent gene pool. But not always. The smaller or more isolated one breeding group is, the more likely novel traits will emerge. So that even in just a few generations, you can tell whether some lone wanderer came from this group or from that one, because they show unique traits indicative of one group or another. And most of the time, these variations are slight and don't make any significant difference. Sometimes they're defects, which get weeded out pretty quickly. But sometimes these variations include slight improvements depending on the environment, such that some puppies are better adapted to arid conditions or to a colder climate, or they can run a bit faster, or they're able to produce more and healthier offspring. So that eventually, those advantageous traits become dominant in that population by interbreeding with subsequent generations, simply as an aspect of population mechanics. Now, these new traits don't necessarily have to be advantageous either, just different which is how we end up with so many different breeds of dogs, cattle, pigeons, and so many different species of dogs, bovines, finches, or what have you. The best way I can explain the evolution of a population as opposed to an individual is through analogy with the evolution of language. Because many centuries after the alleged Tower of Babel that never really happened, you had Romans speaking Latin. And as Latin-speaking people moved into the rest of Southern Europe, tiny differences continued to arise in the way each of these immigrant cultures spoke. So that eventually, Latin evolved into what we now recognize as Spanish, French, and Romanian. This is cladogenesis, where new variants arise separate from the original stock and become progressively different over time. The Italian language also evolved from Latin, this time by anagenesis, where these tiny differences kept building up in the original language, eventually changing Latin into Italian over the course of several centuries. And no one living in Italy even noticed that that was happening. Evolution is when separated populations change over time, becoming noticeably different than their ancestral or sister groups. It is not in any sense remotely like an individual getting a callus or a suntan. But actually, here's what that really means. Darwinists say that microevolution within types, that means your body evolving, proves that macroevolution occurred. Macroevolution is variation within a species, being the different breeds of dogs or pigeons derived by artificial selection, or the various subspecies of wildcats, for example, that were derived by natural selection. Macroevolution is variation between species, at or above the species level, but it is still a continuation of the exact same process that I just described a moment ago. Yet there is no observable evidence of directional change that leads to a new species. There actually is substantial evidence of change that leads to new species, but it's not directional, as I already indicated and will explain again in a moment. Evolution is about biodiversity, meaning to produce different forms, experimenting blindly, constantly, to happen across what works rather than determining that in advance. That is the pattern we see throughout nature, rather than the directional change that you imagine or that we should expect of a magical creator.
bodies. For example, dog breeders, through trial and error, can develop bigger, smaller dogs, etc. yet they have never taken two dogs and made a cat. Breeders can't jump species guided by their intelligence, and we are supposed to believe that species evolved into new species by accident. They can't even do it when they're trying, and we're supposed to believe that new species came along by accident. That's just a little ridiculous. A common obstacle in explaining evolution to creationists, besides the fact that they don't want to understand it, is that they don't know what a species is, and they have that confused with an erroneous notion of what you called jumping species, between what you imagine to be different kinds, as if one lineage could become another. This is part of a fundamental and often deliberately contrived failure to understand even the basics of what evolution is or how it works. Evolution is summarily defined as descent with inherent modification. So descendants are modified versions of whatever their ancestors were. If the progenitors were canids instead of felids, their descendants aren't going to become felids. No matter how different you become from your ancestral stock, you can't grow out of your ancestry. Thus, every new species of canid will still be a canid, whether it is one of the many species of fox or dog or bear or dog bear. It can still become many different species of canid, but it will never become a felid whether feline or panther, for the same reason that you will never become an Einstein. However embarrassed you are at your heritage, you can't exchange it for a new pedigree. I mean, really, what they're trying to make us believe is if I swept long enough and then I have a family who always sweeps, then eventually my arm would just shift to a broom. <laughs> it would just become a broom because that's what I would need, and so now I would have a broom for an arm. Now, my wife would love that, but that's not what has happened. I realize that religion is completely opposite of science in that while the purpose of science is to improve understanding by minimizing biases, reasoning logically, and correcting errors to find out what is really true, religion is all about make-believe, irrationally convincing yourselves of what is not evidently true. So the reduction to absurdity fallacy works for your goal of confusing the audience with misrepresented parody of what evolution isn't, and everyone should know that. But I'm still disheartened with humanity that you claim 10,000 congregates and not one of them is honest or smart enough or has enough integrity to be irritated at being misled like gullible children. Apparently religious believers want that and enjoy it. But science-minded people don't like being lied to. Knowledge is power because only accurate information has practical application. So we want our information to be accurate and our instructors should be held accountable when they get something wrong. Yet you've been very obviously absolutely wrong about absolutely everything, and everyone in your pews is okay with that? 10,000 people who would rather believe in lies than understand the way things really are? I find that disturbing, especially as I see that as the root of the worst of our problems economically, environmentally, politically, socially, you name it. When are we going to stop pretending that reality isn't real? And so the reality is that even though we do see some minor changes within a species, Here's the problem with that. When they say, oh, that means that that the changes continued and continued until we went from a tadpole to a frog to a reptile to a mammal to an ape to a man. That sounds really great in theory. It's just not been proven in any experimentation. There's literally no experimentation, not a single one, of jumping from one species to another. Of course, the reality is that there is actually volumes of that experimentation that's been going on since the 1700s. There are now many tens of thousands of peer-reviewed studies showing this throughout academia. For convenience, sticking just to this one facet, I'll refer you to this list of observed speciation events, followed by this list of some more observed speciation events. So while you say there is no experimentation, not even one, 
There are many. These are peer-reviewed documentation of new species evolving both in the lab and in naturally controlled conditions in the field. These lists are both over 20 years old. There have been many more speciation events since then. Here's a new one that was just published last week. We're introducing a predatory microbe prompted a single-celled organism to evolve multicellularity in just a few months. They usually study microbes because the shorter the generations, the faster the evolution. I can show you many more examples for you to ignore if you like. But our evolution didn't go from a tadpole to a frog to a reptile like you pretend. If you'd like to see some of the volumes of evidence for that, I know you don't even want to know about it, but others watching might, I have compiled a video series called the Systematic Classification of Life, explaining the entire sequence of what you would call molecules to man. And there are no tadpoles or frogs or reptiles in our lineage. There's absolutely lots of times when they tried to breed two different uh, you know, types of animals inside the species and create something, but that's where the breakdown begins. It just never turns into another species. Another thing that creationists habitually get wrong about evolution is turning it upside down or backwards such that two species hybridize to make a third. While that can and actually has happened under very rare circumstances, evolution is typically exactly opposite such that a buildup of unique distinctions in various subsets lead to one species becoming two, then four, then eight, and so on, excepting when some of those species go extinct and leave survivors behind. Remember that the pattern of the tree of life is not two fusing into one. It's one branching out and branching again and again to become many different branches, thus increasing biodiversity. So genetic limits and cyclical change. Cyclical change means this, because this is, this is important. They said, you know what, if, if Darwin's theory is correct, then that means we constantly are getting better, right? Survival of the fittest. So why doesn't every man in here look like Dwayne the Rock Johnson by now? Right, shouldn't we all just be bigger and stronger nonstop, right? And so my, uh, my wife's father, his name's Tom, he's a pretty big guy. And so it's a good looking guy, he's real strong. And uh, he, he's about 6'2". And then my wife comes along that, you know, um, him and his wife gave, gave birth to Jessica. And, and she's not that tall. She's not short, but she's not as tall for a girl as say her, her dad would be. And you would expect that she may be, right? So the, the height went from a little tall to kind of normal. And then all of a sudden, Jessica and I get married. We have babies. And then Tom's grandson, my son, Cole, looks a lot like him, and now he's about 6'1", and he's probably gonna be 6'2", or 6'3", like his grandfather. He didn't get that from me, I'm six foot, and I'm hardly that, I'm holding on. The other day I went and they, they measured me, they said 5'11", I was like, you are not riding 5'11 down. <laughs> How many men know what I'm talking about? I was like, I used to be six foot, and I know you're supposed to shrink as you get older, uh-uh, you're putting six foot. <laughs> With the afro, I'm fine. The point is, is that, right, I'm not as tall, right? I mean, it should have been from generation to generation getting taller and taller, bigger, stronger, faster, whatever, right? But the reality is, is even though we said, well, look at man, man is so much faster. There's, there's evidence that every Olympic, there's another record broken. But there's lots of examples of men who are sitting in the stands that can't run at all. So not every man is getting faster, right? So clearly everyone's not getting better and, and bigger and this and that. Otherwise, wouldn't man eventually now be something else? something greater and bigger and better and all that. So this is where the breakdown happens. Genetic limits and cyclical changes. It's not directional change. There's absolutely change, but it's in all directions. Sometimes better, sometimes worse, depending upon what you believe is better or worse. Some, you, some of you might even not even care about height and think that's not better. I understand that. But the point is, is that there's changes, but they're not directional. They're not constantly going in one direction. And so that is a reality of genetic limits. In this case, the reality of genetic limits, as you put it, is that if you're descended from great athletes and have inherited their best genes for that, 
then you might be a better athlete than someone who is not part of that family and therefore doesn't share those genes for physical aptitude. Maybe your genetic makeup makes you adept at something else. While some people have gotten better at, in this or that area, it's different for everybody and dependent primarily on genetics. It's not like everyone everywhere inherits the same mutations as everyone else at the same time, even if they're not related. Evolution is about biodiversity, branching lineages with a, a range of skills, and maybe some turn out to be better than others in particular circumstances. Progress, when that happens, is not steady or continuous or directional. It's peripheral and incidental. It obviously can't be directional unless it's being directed. Number two, the fossil record supports instant creation. I believe this is one of the biggest evidences, by the way, that there is a God. The fossil record supports instant creation. No, it definitely doesn't. The fossil record supports the earliest bacterial microbes appearing some 3.8 billion years ago. It supports the first vertebrates evolving out of pre-existing chordates around 500 million years ago, and it supports the first mammals evolving out of pre-existing therapsids around 200 million years ago, with myriad identified links before, after, and in between. The fossil record not only does not support even the possibility of an instant creation, it clearly and unambiguously proves that that's definitely not what happened. A slow progression and proliferation of evolving species is clearly what really happened. Darwin um, truly believed that there should be fossils everywhere of these supposed transitional beings between a reptile, a mammal, and a mammal, and an ape, and an ape, and a man. There, there, there should be bones that match this everywhere and they just, they're just not there. They're, just, they're not found in the fossil record. Yes, they are. You're now repeating the ninth foundational falsehood of creationism. In my video about that, I listed three or four hundred known examples of definitely transitional species, even according to the strictest definition of that word. In that video, I also showed where Darwin explained why he did not truly believe that there should be fossils everywhere and why that would not even be reasonable to expect given the conditions of fossilization and transition. The fossil record goes directly against the evolution theory of gradualism, instead supports instant creation. This is from Stephen Jay Gould from Harvard. Uh, he is a paleontologist and an evolutionist, and this is what he said. So he's an evolutionist, he believes in evolution, but unfortunately his, his uh, scientific evidence is proving opposite of what he believes. This is what he said. The history of most fossil species includes two features particularly inconsistent with gradualism. Number one, stasis. Stasis just means things don't change that much. Most species exhibit no directional change during their tenure on Earth. They appear in the fossil record looking in much the same as when they disappear. Morphological change, morphological just means it morphs like slowly morphing into something else, right? Like we see in the movies. You just don't see that you know, under the microscope. Morphological change is usually limited and directionless. Also, sudden appearance. In any local area, a species does not arise gradually by the steady transformation of its ancestors. It appears all at once and fully formed. Guys, that's proof for a God. If we have animals all at once fully formed and we don't have these transitional beings that supposedly exist, that means someone started it up all at once. That sounds like the God of Genesis to me. And this is being discovered at Harvard University, not exactly a Christian institution. What they discovered at Harvard University is that if you read the original context instead of the creationist quote mine, you'd see that what Gould said immediately prior to that quote was that it is gradualism we must reject, not Darwinism. Although prior to that, he also said he did not wish in any way to impugn the potential validity of gradualism because he realized that it might still be right. So the science was not conflicting with his beliefs in any way. In the quote you cited, 
Gould was actually contrasting the old idea of gradualism, which is not what you think it is, with saltation, specifically with regard to how organisms appear in different periods of geologic history rather than all at the same time like you pretend, and whether that was by speciation or phyletic transformation. And that's when the entire species changes together in unison. Like you suggested when you said we should all be evolving in the same direction at once. Gould was arguing against that. He said that's not how evolution works. One of the problems with gradualism is that it's difficult to detect even if it's correct. Evolution is a matter of incremental, superficial changes being slowly compiled atop successive tiers of fundamental similarity. And those tiers of similarity indicate taxonomic clades. That means that the core of the thing, what it is essentially, matters more than its surface features. So we might find the skeletons of dozens of different species of colubrid snakes, species that look and act very different in life, but their skeletons are indistinguishable. How much difference is there between the skull of a lion as compared to a tiger? So most of the gradual changes would never appear in the fossil record, not until it affects the skeleton, which is the basis of the thing and thus usually the last thing to change. And Darwin lamented that in his time there were virtually no significant transitional fossils yet known, but he was confident that such would be discovered, and the first of those actually was discovered while he was still alive, and it was one of the most important ones we've ever found. Gould also lamented the relative poverty of transitions in the fossil record a hundred years later. He had some, and he had some good ones, just not all the ones that he wanted. He said this was because most things don't fossilize. So we see only occasional images in a slideshow many generations apart. But in the more than 40 years since Gould complained about this, there has been a paleontological boon, such that far more fossils and more transitions have been discovered just in the last couple decades than in the last couple centuries prior. So you should update your information and correct it, of course. Before you tell 10,000 people what something is, you should probably look it up yourself. For example, morphology has nothing to do with morphing into anything. It's the study of the shape of the organism, because evolution is a change in physical proportions. Your physical proportions are your morphology, even if the moon isn't full and you don't morph into something else. Number three, kind of leans right into number two. Non-viability, that's a big word, that just means that it can't live, it can't survive. Non-viability of transitional forms and a lack of fossil records of these forms. Non-viable means that, you know, Darwin's theory said it was all about survival of the fittest. And so if it really is survival of the fittest, right? I mean, that, that leads to, to you to ask the question, then what about these transitional supposed beings? How could they survive if they were in transition? Wouldn't they have been eaten or killed or wouldn't have made it, right? And so I wanna show you a picture of a transitional form that they believe existed, but there's actually, there's actually no <laughs> fossil record of this, but can you put that on the screen real quick? There you go. And so this is what you call a flaposaurus, if it existed at all. They're just thinking it may have existed because they're trying to say, look, look, it's got the reptile tail and reptile body, but then look, it's got wings. Here's the problem with this. Survival of the fittest says that the only animals that survived would have had to have fought off other animals. So, okay, think about this. So you got reptilian skin, which is tough and strong. You need that if you're gonna be on the ground fighting with another reptile, right? The problem is they also have little bitty wings and everybody knows if you've ever held a bird, they're very fragile. You could easily rip it apart. It'd be disgusting to do it, but you could. And so just think about that. If an animal wants to eat you, forget going for the reptile skin, go for the wings. So the reason birds survive is because they fly off. They're so light. They don't have skin that weighs them down like that. The problem with that is if they ever have a problem with their wing and they end up on the ground, guess what? They're easy prey at that point, aren't they? 
Most birds that get eaten, right, by another animal, it's because something happened to their wing, they can't fly, and now they're easy prey because that's how they escape. So here that animal is something that it, it can't fly off. You could easily, if you're another reptile, take a bite off of that arm and it would easily, ble- this, this animal would bleed out. And I'm trying to be gross and trying to explain the survival of the fittest. So it's not strong enough to fight anything on the ground and it's not, it doesn't have big enough wings to fly off. This wouldn't survive because it's in transition. And so this is a great example that is non-viable. It wouldn't be able to make it. Non-viability of transitional forms. And also this exists on paper because somebody drew it. We can't find any evidence of this kind of creature. There's just no bones that match this. And so it just, in other words, someone created this because they have to have it to be able to get to the transition of a mammal or to a bird. So they, they just, essentially, I'm trying to be nice here. They made it up. There's no evidence of this, is what's actually going on. You mean you somehow never heard of a velociraptor either? Outside of Jurassic Park, I mean? When I was a kid, scientists already knew how bird-like these skeletons were, but in the last decade or so, scientists found proof that velociraptors were actually covered in feathers, as well as every other similar species of manoraptor, if not all Silurosaurs. They don't all just have downy feathers like most dinosaurs turned out to have. Manoraptors have wing feathers too, small wings, so that they look exactly like your Flaposaurus. You said there's no evidence of that, but there are dozens of species that look just like it, from the tiny Velociraptor to the mighty Utah Raptor. These are not birds. These are feathered dinosaurs. They were mostly flightless, but they were literally raptors, effectively birds of prey, albeit with teeth and claws in their wings, although some feathered dinosaurs also had beaks. I say mostly flightless because Microraptor had wing feathers on both its arms and its legs and could at least glide. Another one, Rahonavis, about the same age as Archaeopteryx, has the same skeleton as Velociraptor, up to and including the diagnostic raptor claw in the middle toe. But this raptor was small enough and had wings big enough that it could fly, and it had become an actual bird. You didn't know anything about any of this, and you didn't consult with anyone who might have known any of this before you told 10,000 people that none of this existed. You should have known better before you accused the scientific community of drawing pictures of all these dozens of species you were ignorant about and thought were just made up like your god. So that you could accuse the scientists of lying when you yourself haven't said anything that was true yet. You obviously don't follow your ninth commandment, do you? How long will it take for you to post an apology for all your mistakes here? Or should I predict that you never will? That instead you will keep on repeating all these same falsehoods that we can now prove that you know were never true. And so two other things about that. They have no viable mechanism for getting reptiles to birds. uh, Mechanism just means, uh, how does this functionally work? How do you get a reptile to turn into a bird? There's just, there's no scientific evidence of that actually happening. The viable mechanism is pretty simple. The reptile family tree divided between lizards and such on the Lepidosaur side and crocodilians and such on the archosaur side. Lizards have three chambered hearts. Archosaurs have four chambered hearts. And turtles, which are kind of in the middle, have three and a half chambers in their hearts. Then the archosaur side divided between crocodilomorphs and ornithodirons, which developed hollow chambers in their bones, which made them lighter. And some of them could even breathe through their bones with a system of membranous air sacs like modern birds have. And this made dinosaurs and pterosaurs stronger, faster, bigger, and more energetic than us. Up to this point, you already accept all of these as reptiles, even though we've known since the 1800s that ornithodirons were definitely warm-blooded like we are and like birds are. 
Birds are taxonomically classified as diapsid reptiles because their transition from non-avian silurosaurs to what are unambiguously birds passed through a sequence of paraaves. Dinosaurs that are already so bird-like that even the experts can't always be sure which side of that line they're on. But that's not all. There's more. A number of paleonates and other modern birds still have clawed fingers in their wings. And chicken embryos initially developed the beginnings of a segmented dinosaur tail, but it's reabsorbed as they grow. And geneticists have found and activated a gene that causes chicken embryos to grow teeth like dinosaurs too, instead of a beak. That's just some of the scientific evidence you didn't know about when you told 10,000 people that no such evidence exists. Are you going to admit to them next week that you got all this wrong? Also, even if the mechanism existed, the transitional forms would be unlikely to survive, just like we just talked about. This is what your Flaposaurus looked like in real life, because it was real and terrifying. We just know it by a different name. Manoraptor means grabbing hands, because they had spring-loaded grasping claws concealed in their wings. That's where birds inherited the strength of the downstroke in their flapping motion. Does this look non-viable to you? These were the most skilled predators of their time, the wolves and eagles of their day, capable of killing things much bigger than them and much badder than you. A Deinonychus was slightly smaller than you, but it had greater strength, speed, and endurance and would slash you apart in seconds. I wish we could give you a bowie knife in each hand and pitch you against Dakota Raptor and see which of you turns out to be unlikely to survive. Now, by the way, next week I'm talking about the age of the earth and dinosaurs. Forgive me, I tried to get in this week and I just had too much content to do that. So next week we're gonna talk about the age of the earth and also dinosaurs. If you're wondering like, what does the Bible say about dinosaurs? Actually, a lot. It says a lot about dinosaurs in the book of Job. If you'd like to look at it yourself, you can. But we're gonna talk about that next week and, and we're gonna learn about that. We're also gonna talk about the biblical flood uh, briefly as well and how scientifically that's been proven to be the case that there is a flood. Uh, and so we'll talk about that as well. So the next one I think is one of my favorites, and this is about a common genetic code. So people say a common genetic code could prove a common ancestor like that we all came from apes. So here's what I believe that really means. So let me just give you an example. What they're trying to say is when you look at the common genetic code that we all have DNA in us, right? Apes have DNA, mice have DNA, we have DNA. Oh, we all must be from the same common ancestor. Therefore, that somehow proves evolution. Well, let me just explain what they're trying to say. You ever seen the picture, right? The picture, the famous picture where they take a tadpole and they have it develop all the way up to a dog or to a cat or whatever, and all the way to, a, to an ape and into a man, to a monkey, to an ape, to a man. How many of you guys have seen that picture, right? It's on the back of some people's cars, right? Yeah, it's a common thing if they, if they believe in it. I always love when people put their religion on the back of their car. And so, so they have that, 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 that scaling up to a man. But to me, that's equivalent of this. Look, check it out. I've got measuring cups. Oh, these are so nice. And then you go for a frying pan. You go to a larger frying pan. Eventually you get to a saucepan, right? And then you get to a pot. And then eventually you get to a skillet. And then ultimately you get to this steam pot, or as we like to say in South Texas, a tamale maker, whatever you'd like to call it. <laughs> Right? And so this is what this looks like to us, right? Because that's what we use it for. So, so what, what would, wouldn't it be ridiculous if you said, oh, look, look at the metal on this and the color, it matches the color of, of the pans and the pots all the way down to the measuring cup. And it's the same design, the same screws are on it and the same type of material. Clearly this steam pot evolved from the measuring cup. Maybe we should step back and realize maybe it's not a common ancestor. Maybe it's a common creator that made them all to match their collection. So I believe it's a common God, 
Not, not that we all came. I mean, when you, when you drive along and you see a, a Toyota Land Cruiser, if you're like me, I always say, nice car. And then after that, I don't say, wow, that must come from the Corolla. It must have evolved. <laughs> it's got the same logo. It's got a lot of the same design. And you say, no, no, that just means it all came from Toyota. It doesn't mean it evolved from a Corolla. It means that instead, that the same manufacturer made small ones and large ones have got the same basic design. I guess I'd need to know where I can see an old car giving birth to a new car. Or do cars lay eggs, pollinate, or launch spores? Do they divide by fission? How do cars reproduce? Because if cars are just devices that have to be assembled by people and can't reproduce on their own, then it doesn't make sense in your analogy with biology, does it? And it looks pretty stupid to compare replicative organisms to pots and pans. Because even if you could actually show someone building a living organism from scratch in a lab, that wouldn't challenge or change the fact that it isn't necessary because they reproduce by themselves. And we know already that evolution really does produce exactly what we see in nature and that it doesn't make sense why an intelligent designer would do anything that seems so unnecessarily unintelligent. Number four, a common genetic code could prove a common ancestor that we all came from apes theory, or it could simply prove a common creator that he made man and apes. Except that then you'd have to explain why God made man as apes. Because we're not just like apes or from apes, we are apes. Just like birds are a taxonomic subset of dinosaurs and lions are a subset of cats and mallards are a subset of ducks, we are a subset of apes. And if we were created in God's image, then we must ask the perplexing question of why is your God an ape? Also, the common genetic code does not exist on the molecular level. This is, I believe, the coup de grace. This is, I believe, the number one evidence that literally puts the last nail in the coffin on Darwin. That says there's just no way. It's the molecular level that Darwin never could get into more in a moment on that. But first of all, let me tell you a couple of facts that people like to use to say, well, this proves that there's evolution. You ever heard this? Well, 85 to 95% of apes' DNA matches humans. So therefore, right, we must be from apes, right? Now, ladies, I know that you feel like, feel like you have a lot of evidence that your husband's from an ape, but that's a whole different kind of evidence. <laughs> but the truth is, is that we like to argue that, oh, well, we must come from apes because 85% of our DNA is similar to an ape's DNA. But did you know, here's the problem with that. Did you know that 90% of mice DNA matches humans too? That doesn't make sense. In fact, Geisler and Turek in their book, I Don't Have the Faith to Be an Atheist, a great book, by the way, I'm relying heavily on that book today. No wonder you got absolutely everything wrong so far. Turek is an apologist who doesn't even want to know what the truth is, so he has no relationship with the truth. He's a professional liar. His book is a lie. The title is a lie. And it's an example of the fallacies of projection and false equivalence. When I met Frank Turek, I was enraged at his rampant dishonesty. I, my wife, and my then 14-year-old son all hit him with observations and challenges he could not refute or address, and we all got applause from his audience when we did. The point is, if you only reference religious apologists with an anti-science agenda, then you're only going to get misrepresented misinformation that will also mislead and deceive your parishioners. Because everything you say will be embarrassingly wrong and willfully ignorant. You should have talked to someone like me, 
someone who at least knows what evolution is and what the evidence for it is, who can prove evolution even to your satisfaction, and I really can, then you wouldn't have said anything you did in this series because you'd know how stupid it is and how negatively that reflects on you. They said, if mice genetically are as close to humans as apes, this will greatly complicate any Darwinian explanation. Basically saying that, see, if you look at the trail of it, let me show you a picture real quick. Can we show just a, a quick picture of the, the mice and the apes? There we go. So look, you start off with this amoeba and you eventually gradually get to, you know, you, you go from fish to eventually a mouse supposedly, and then you keep going up to other mammals and you eventually get to a, a monkey, then an ape, then man, right? This is what they're trying to sell us on. But if the, if the ape and the man are close in DNA, but the mouse is just as close to the DNA, that's a problem. They're supposed to be gradually getting closer but yeah, this is just as close? No, it isn't. And notice how they implied and apparently want you to believe that mice are just as close to humans as are apes. Of course, that's not the case, but they want you to think that it is because they're being deliberately dishonest. 90% does not equal 98%, which is the typically reported average. Geneticists explain that if you look at protein sequences, the part that's exposed to purifying selection slash evolution, the sequences between chimp and human are 99% identical. That ignores the changes in the larger level, loss of whole genes, rearrangement of gene order, loss or gain of regions of chromosomes. If you include these additional changes using repetitive DNA masking and gapped alignments when comparing genomes, then the differences between chimp and human climbs to 4%, meaning that we are 96% identical, not 85% like you keep pretending. But it's not just the high degree of genetic homology, it's also the specific signatures of selection that count as evidence of a biological relationship. And these species are not supposed to be getting genetically closer either, they're supposed to be getting further apart. Funny that creationists always get everything upside down and backwards. We start out with the same genetic code, but different populations build up unique mutations in their genes, generating differences from other populations. Roughly half of our DNA is shared with some of the most distantly related organisms from which we diverged more than 600 million years ago. Whereas we branched off from dogs and cats 90 million years ago, which is why we're roughly 85% similar to them. And we diverged from the line leading to rodents another 5 million years later, which is why we're slightly more similar to mice than we are to dogs or cats, but still not as similar as we are to the other apes in our own taxonomic family. So what we're really learning is that we actually don't have a transition in the DNA. What we have is the same God using the same building blocks to build everything. That's what we actually have going on here. Does that make sense? <sighs> No, it doesn't. While we have extensive evidence in paleontology, embryology, and phylogenetics to prove that there definitely is a measurable and objectively verifiable transition in the DNA, there is not any indication anywhere that a god is even possible, much less that it ever actually did anything. And so this is where uh, people kind of went off the reservation thinking there was no God because, well, we must be you know, getting better and better and closer and closer to becoming man, and that's just not the truth. Actually, mouse, mice are actually closer to a man whenever you say, are you a man or a mouse? Hey, you're pretty close. You know, that's a, there's some accuracies there. So the, the truth is, is that we, we are similar in our DNA structure, and so that's something we have to face. And so check out what Geisler Turk said about this. If all species share a common ancestor, we should expect to find protein sequences. This is what's inside DNA. So by the way, they, they basically broke open the living cell and they found DNA. Then they broke open the DNA and they found protein inside of it. I don't know if you know this, the basic building block we used to say is the living cell. No, we've gotten smaller now, it's the DNA. Oh, no, 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 we've gotten smaller now, it's the protein. 
It's crazy what we can do now do in science to see inside the living cell, so inside the DNA. Uh, they, they say, let me go, go back. If all species share a common ancestor, we should expect to find protein sequences inside the DNA that are transitional from, say, fish to amphibian, from reptile to mammal, but that is not what we find at all. Instead, the basic types of molecularly, are molecularly isolated from one another. On a molecular level, molecules inside your DNA, they, they are the same basic four components but they're in totally different orders and there's no sequence that matches. Did you know that? So yes, we all have DNA in this, but inside that DNA, it is completely different than what in the, when it comes to the order from what is in an ape to what's in a mouse, what's in a fish. It's totally different. There are nothing, nothing alike. This is why if you're going to speak on a subject that you don't know anything about, you should consult with experts who do know about that rather than religious apologists who lie for a living. That's not to say that every religious person is an apologist or liar. One of my instructors was a geneticist on the Human Genome Project, as she wrote that, I am a Christian, and I accept that Noah's Ark was a folktale told by mouth until it was written down around Moses' time. It is not a first-hand account. Only literal Bible readers get bogged down with trying to prove that the creation story, Adam and Eve and Noah's Ark, are absolute fact. More importantly, she also wrote that the evidence of taxonomic relationships is overwhelming when you look at the comparisons between digitomic DNA sequences of both closely related and distantly related species. The DNA of yeast and humans share over 30% homology with regard to gene sequences. Comparison of the human and mouse genome shows that only 1% of the genes in either genome fails to have an ortholog with the other genome. Comparison of non-gene sequences, on the other hand, shows a huge amount of divergence. This type of homology can be explained only from descent from a common ancestor. The possibility of these things being a coincidence, which I guess would be the argument of creationism and intelligent design, is statistically so small as to be negligible. Yet here you are, citing a dishonest religious apologist who obviously lied when he said that the DNA of different species is totally different, nothing alike. There are many more scientists I could cite to prove how wrong your sources are about this, and I'll include a couple recommended links below. Michael Denton, the scientist, said this about this. He wrote a book called Evolution of Theory and Crisis. He wrote this, by the way, in the 80s they started to discover this. He said, at a molecular level, there is no trace of evolutionary transition from fish to amphibian to reptile to mammal. So amphibian, always traditionally considered intermediate between fish and other terrestrial vertebrae, are in molecular terms as far from fish as from any other group of reptiles or mammals. To those well acquainted with the traditional picture of vertebrae evolution, the result is truly astonishing. He's basically saying that it just blows it up. It doesn't match. So it doesn't fit evolution at all, after all. Yes, it does exactly fit evolution perfectly, but you're not gonna get an admission like that from a pseudoscience apologist like Michael Denton. The fact is that amphibians are not in our ancestry. Although we did evolve from things that were amphibious and would have been characteristically similar to what we now see as amphibians, the taxonomic clade of amphibia was a sister clade to our own. When amniotes were evolving into the first diapsids and synapsids like us, Frogs and salamanders had just begun their evolution too, side by side with us, not ancestral to us. Those other pre-amniotic tetrapods that we and modern amphibians both evolved from don't exist anymore, so we don't have their DNA. The closest we have is the DNA of modern frogs and salamanders that evolved alongside us. So what Michael Denton said is exactly correct and is just what we would expect 
Yet it is still deliberately dishonest because he already knew everything I just told you. So he knew how misleading it would be to express these facts that way because he knew how you and other laymen would interpret that. Yet he said nothing to correct that because he didn't want to correct that. He wanted you to misinterpret it that way because these are the kind of lies that reaffirm the faith. And so now when they got inside the cell, this is what really rocked the boat of every evolutionist is when they began to get inside the cell. And this was really the 90s that this began into the 2000s all the way up to today. And so they now have uh, the blockchains and the DNA mapped of an entire human body, which took literally, I think, a couple of decades to do that because we're that detailed. And so let me just tell you, I believe that the most powerful evidence that there is a God is found in the last point here, and it's called irreducible complexity. Would you write that down? Irreducible complexity. You can't reduce it, you can't simplify it, we're just simply complex beings. Here's what that means. In 1859, Darwin wrote, that's when he wrote his book, by the way, very cutting edge, 1859. He wrote, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Well, now that's unproven. I don't know if you knew this or not, but Darwin never could see into the human cell. He called it a black box, a mysterious little part of life that no one could see into. Molecular biology has single-handedly destroyed the concept of simplicity for change's sake, meaning that it has to stay simple for it to change. It's not simple. Once they got inside the living cell, they realized this is incredibly more complex. Darwin, another, another research that Darwin made, he actually, Darwin actually said he thought that when you broke up in the cell, it would just be like a little bit jelly donut, just a bunch of gushy, smushy stuff, that's it. He had no idea the complexity of the cell. Otherwise, how can cells multiply? How can they fight off disease? How would they be able to do those things if they were just simply just jelly? If it was just mush that we were made out of? It's not as incredibly complex. So let me break this down. I'm gonna to try to explain something that's very complicated pretty quick here. DNA's genetic alphabet consists of four letters, A, T, C, and G. Well, within each human cell, there are 3,000 million pairs of those letters. Take 3,000, multiply it by a million, and that's how many pairs of A, T, C, and G you have that come together to make one living cell. And oh, did I mention that half of those are left hand, half of those are right hand, they have to match up perfectly? But remember folks, all this happened by accident. It's a total accident that you have even one cell in your body, according to Darwin theory. And yet, you know how many cells you have in your body, by the way? They finally figured out a count on this. It keeps going up, by the way. I'm sure it'll go up next year again. Right now, the current count that they have in your body is 37.2 trillion. But you're an accident. It just happened to come together. That's what we're supposed to believe here. It's literal insanity to believe this. You say that, but you already know that the scientific community unanimously disagrees with you. Less than 1% of all earth and life scientists give any credence to creationism, and all of them because they were raised in a prior religious situation. Otherwise, no. The overwhelming majority of scientists don't even believe in God, even if they began as Christians. So you know that all the world's best educated expert specialists with advanced degrees in their various specialties accept evolution as a fact. And this includes geneticists doing cutting-edge research today and microbiologists who understand the complexity of cell biology very, very well. Yet you don't think that they understand evolution better than your gross distortion of it? Instead, you think that the reason that 99.86% of all these scientists accept evolution because they're all insane? 
two-thirds of them might think that you're insane for having a magic imaginary friend or for believing in possible nonsense for no good reason. But then there's another third of these evolutionist scientists who still believe in God. They just know more about both sides of this argument than you know about your own alone. And why have you never considered the glaring probability that all these experts might know something about the fields they've studied their whole lives that you don't? Especially since it's so obvious that you don't know anything about this at all. The first thing you should understand is that complexity is actually an argument against a creator god. Gods and magic are the simplest excuses men ever made up to explain anything, and they don't explain anything. But everything at the molecular level is staggeringly complex simply because it's made of molecules. How complex is water? It's just a single oxygen atom covalently bonded to two of the simplest atoms there are. Just one proton and one electron each. That's pretty simple, right? But a single drop has 6.022 times 10 to the 23rd molecules of water per mole of water. And that's so complicated that you still don't know how many molecules that is even after I just told you. Being impressed with how tiny an atom is and how many of them you could literally stick on the head of a pin does not imply a god. Because you can still fit a whole lot of atoms in this tiny little space right here, regardless whether there's a god or not. And they basically found out that the living cell, the human cell, is basically like a little machine. It's like a little engine inside of you that keeps you going. In fact, if you ask anyone who has cancer, they have certain cells that need to fight off other cells, don't they? Because they know that the, on the cellular level is where the battle begins. And so how can a cell that's supposed to have no machinery fight off anything? Apparently, that little cell's got a brain in it. It knows what it's doing. It has design features to it that you would expect of a God who made us, if you believe that. If you don't believe that, then you're stuck with a really hard question. How can this be an accident? How is this possibly an accident? When you say accident, you mean it wasn't deliberately orchestrated for an intended purpose by a being with magical powers which logically can't itself even exist and evidently doesn't. So a better question is, how could this be intentional? Because that would be impossible. I think the biggest problem with trying to teach evolution to creationists is that religion reverses everything and you've got everything literally upside down because you're pleading for an uber-galactic authority governing everything from the top down, which would inevitably be quite clumsy and he would have to overlook a lot, just like the God of the Bible does, especially when he's arguing with Abraham. What you need to understand are the properties of emergent complexity which naturally and inevitably arise from the bottom up. Computer simulations have demonstrated that if you create a universe with a few simple rules and a perpetually replicating system wherein there are tiny variations subject to selective pressures amid population mechanics in a, in a dynamic environment, especially when there's competition, that increasingly different forms will emerge on their own. Without any intent or goal, with incidental designs unintentionally imposed by their circumstances that exceed the capacity of human designers, without, literally without a thought. How can this be an accident? Simple. If you already have such a replicating system with random variations, then staggering complexity will inevitably, eventually emerge. And by the way, this is almost like an engine. In fact, the problem with me using the engine illustration is it's far less complicated than a cell. A human living cell is incredibly detailed, far more than any engine you've ever driven around in a car. You take the highest level engine you could possibly find, let Tesla build it, let Ferrari build it, you name who you'd like to build, let NASA build it. It's far less complicated than all the parts and pieces that go into one living cell. Did you know that? 
But yet that's supposed to be an accident. We look at the Tesla engine and call Elon Musk a genius. He may be a mad genius, but he's a genius. We look at what NASA's built and we certainly say that's genius. But genius requires a designer. But yet we are supposed to have a far more complicated thing called the living cell in us. We have 37.2 trillion of them all working together to make us function. And yet that wasn't built by a genius. That was built on accident. This is just absurd. What they're asking us to believe is literally crazy. Let me, let me explain it this way. Darwinists can't explain the source of the materials to make an engine of the living cell, in other words, much less how any irreducible complex engine can, came to be in the first place. Nor can they demonstrate the unintelligent process by which any engine has evolved into the space shuttle <laughs> while providing propulsion at every intermediate step. Let me just explain this. I'm gonna put some engines on the screen for real quick for you. So here we have an engine. This is a four-cylinder engine that can be found in any Honda, Toyota, you pick your car, small Chevy, there you go, it's four-cylinder. We're supposed to believe, this is what we're taught, through evolutionary theory, that this little four-cylinder turned into a six-cylinder. Can you show me that? There's a six-cylinder there. That it just morphed into that. On its own, no one helped it. Do I have any mechanics in the room? What are the chances of you converting a four-cylinder into a six-cylinder? Probably not gonna happen, right? It's pretty much impossible. Then you have a six-cylinder, let's keep going. That turns into an eight-cylinder. Wow, look at there. Boom, an F-150 motor, just like that. And now let's keep going. So give enough time, it eventually turns into a tractor motor. Or how about a jet motor, right? It just keeps on going. Somehow the little, that little four-cylinder turns into that, just give it enough time. <laughs> and it'll accidentally happen. Oh, I forgot to mention one thing about how these engines are supposed to evolve. Uh, by the way, anyone who works on cars, what's the first thing you do when you work on a car? You pull it under a tree and you turn it off. Or you pull it in the garage and you turn it off. Or you pop the hood and you turn it off to work on it. Here's the problem. Scientists have to tell us this, that actually this little engine that evolved from a four-cylinder to an eight-cylinder, from a tadpole to a man, actually the whole time the engine was being developed, it was running the whole time. So you have to work on the engine while it's running. Oh, and by the way, you can't work on it because that, that involves a human or, or a mind or a designer, someone outside the engine, so it just has to accidentally. So we'll just throw enough car parts around it, give enough time, it'll just eventually work. This is what we're asked to believe. This is insanity at best. And now that we know the living cell, which Darwin did not know, is so incredibly complex, it's irreducibly complex, it forces us to ask the question, is there really a God who built all this? Is there really a designer who made all of this happen? Maybe you're forced with a big question today that you didn't think you'd come hear any kind of evidence that was actually true. Maybe you thought I was just gonna spout off religious dogma. You didn't know that every bit of the evidence I have is from science proving that there is a God. Understand that in order to prove God, you must first show some precedent or parallel or verified phenomenon indicating that your God is at least possible. Then you have to show objectively verifiable facts which are positively indicative of or exclusively concordant with that hypothesis over any other. You didn't do that. No one ever has. To qualify as proof, there must be an overwhelming preponderance of such evidence beyond reasonable doubt. You provided none. Instead, you relied on the God of the gaps fallacy, the illogical notion that if you don't know or can't understand the scientific explanation, or if you can misrepresent that explanation such that no one listening to you would understand it either, you think that means God did it. <laughs> no, it means you don't know the real answer. 
For example, I hear this engine analogy often. Creationists got all excited when a drawing of ATP synthase made it look like a brand name rotary motor from the Home Improvement Depot, and not at all like the wibbly-wobbly molecular mess that it really is. And then they said, you can't explain how that evolved because it's irreducibly complex and that proves God, which of course it doesn't. Besides, two different science labs had already explained in detail how there was a single point mutation at one stage, followed by a loss of function of this other gene, and then the subsequent duplication slash fusion of a different gene, followed by another loss of function in this other gene. So we had that explanation now. But if we went back 20 years ago, before we knew that, would it mean that God did it until we figured out what the real answer is? No. Thus far, God did it has always proved to be the wrong answer. Regarding your comparison of engines to living cells, I happened across this article from Big Think, citing evolutionary biologist Andreas Wagner. It says, each eukaryotic cell is vastly more complex than our hottest tech. And no self-respecting human engineer would devise such seemingly disorderly, inefficient complexity and that nature doesn't just tolerate disorder, it needs some disorder. Understand that citing anti-science religious apologists is not the same thing as citing science. You didn't cite science at all in your whole presentation. All you did was misquote what you didn't understand and you obviously didn't understand any of this at all. So you tried to confuse your uneducated audience and you said that there was no evidence of this or that when there definitely is quite a lot of evidence, actually. You should know that absolutely every single one of the claims that intelligent design proponents have made about irreducible complexity were formally and thoroughly disproved, both in the practice of actual science and then again in a court of law. Wherein, the conservative Christian Republican judge lamented that advocates of intelligent design who so staunchly and proudly touted their religious convictions in public would time and again lie to cover their tracks and disguise the real purpose behind the ID policy. Because not only do you not have any evidence of yours or any other God, but I think the most damning evidence against God has to be that he needs apologists like yourself who cannot defend the belief with actual factual information so that believers have to lie in defense of their faith.